0: I would like to welcome you to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a free spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad that you're here. If you are a visitor here, I would like to extend you a special welcome. We welcome people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, faith backgrounds, skin tones, uh, political affiliations, taste in music. <laughs> we come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love. We gather to seek, to find, and to share. Many people ask, how can you preach to a room full of people who believe such different things? And I say, well, they're all Unitarian Universalists, as am I, which is a very big circle. We draw the circle as wide as we can to bring in everyone of goodwill. And what holds us together in the center is our mission, We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do
1: justice. This morning's reading comes from a book called Goddess Paths, Invocations and Rituals by Patricia Monaghan. Maiden goddess, holy one, protector of the hills and forests, protector of mothers in labor, protector of the buds of infancy, triple goddess, I invoke you. Bless the trees around my home, the ones that shade me, the ones that screen the wind, the ones that perfume the air. May they protect me as you do. How will I thank you? When I eat meat, I will thank you. When I eat fruit, I will thank you. When I drink clear water, I will thank you. Your trees will never lack for offerings as long as I live and breathe. Maiden Goddess, Triple One, my protector as long as I live and breathe.
0: Let us end our time of meditation with a Buddhist metta meditation. The first time through, we'll say this for ourselves. I'll say a line and you say it after me if you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be be mentally happy. May I be be physically happy. May I I have ease of of well-being. The second time we say this for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be be physically happy. May you you have ease of of well-being. The third time as a spiritual stretch, we say this for somebody against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The wisdom of the world says that there is no accurate or complete way to speak about the divine, the mystery, the one. Lao Tse says the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. Once you've described your whole idea of the mystery of the one, you just have to know one thing, and that is that you're wrong. (laughs) So in most cultures, if you picture each faith, or even all the faiths, as a mountain, and many of us are Toward the bottom of the mountain, we can't see each other. We think our way is the only way. And as the mystics of each faith climb the mountain, they get closer to one another as they reach the top. And by the time they're at the top with their highest wisdom, they say, it's all uh, one. But the people who are not at the top of the mountain all describe elements of the mystery or elements of the one with different descriptors and so, there's um, the king of all the gods, and then there's the king's wife, and then there's the king's mother, so who's in charge? And, and there's the thunder god, and then there's the god that dwells by the sacred spring. We just had her celebration yesterday. Brigid is her name. She's a Celtic goddess who um, who's celebration was was because the the mother lamb the mother sheep the ewes began nursing their lambs around this time of the spring so it was the first festival of spring she was sacred to the mothers she was sacred to the milk givers she she was sacred to the the wells of water that came up from the ground and greened everything and kept the animals and the people alive and you would do weather divination on her day and so, our practice of having Groundhog Day is quite ancient. There are Brigid statues that go back to the Neolithic era. Puxatani Phil knows. There's the god of creation and destruction with many arms who is dancing the dance of creation and destruction in Hinduism. There's the goddess of love. There's the god of the rivers, the goddess of the crossroads. In the Celtic uh, tradition, the goddess of the crossroads has a great big cauldron and everyone is headed into it where you go to be transformed or killed, uh, (laughs) depending on how you're looking at it. (laughs) And some people call these spirits and some call them gods and others might call them archetypes. But what I want you to consider this morning is how an individual and a culture's being in the world is shaped by the picture that they use to think about the divine one. If you have a picture that you're working with, your behavior can be shaped by that, your sense of yourself, uh, country's governance, laws. Uh, festivals, and the paradigms with which you understand uh, humans' relationship to the divine and humans' relationship with one another and to the animals and to the creation, and you understand differently uh, what's important and what's expected. The view that most people in the U.S. grow up with is a view of of a concept of God as a male God. He's got masculine qualities, In the Jewish and Christian scriptures, this God is talked about with many different metaphors, some of which are, um, like God of the mountains, El Shaddai. That also can be translated the breasted one, but it just never is. And, um... (laughs) God, the whirlwind, the warrior, the mother hen. I heard a preacher on the radio talk about the mother hen and said, um... God is like a mother hen gathering his chicks under his wings. I think he did not grow up on a farm. But the images that are used most in our culture are God the king, God the judge, and Jesus the good shepherd, and God the father. So father, king, judge, shepherd, those are the main images that people have in mind when they grow up in our culture of God. And so um, if your God is king of everything then and exists outside of you your main choices of a way to relate are as a subject, obedient or as a rebel, disobedient. And The king wants to be pleased. And you have to figure out how the king can be pleased. And it's not always that clear, but you and your family had better please the king, otherwise you're in trouble. And the king can change the rules anytime because he's the king. And so you keep the king happy. Now, I've noticed this, and I don't know if I'm right or not, but as a theologian, I would venture to say, the God that you deal with outside of you also lives inside of you. And when I say deal with, I mean not believe in because believing in the God is one way of dealing with him or her or it or them. Not believing is another way. So if you relate to this particular picture of God, either because that's the one you believe in or that's the one you don't believe in and hold in your mind is that's the one I don't believe in, then you hold it inside. And if the king is inside you, then there is an element in you and your personality that is uh, that feels that if you are at your best self, you are most godlike when you are kingly and when you have everything under control and when people are pleasing you and when you make it clear what to do to please you and when you make consequences come down when you're not pleased. If your god is a judge you got a different situation. Because a judge upholds the law. And so the laws are there and they can't change. And what you want to do is to be really good at the law. So if God is outside you and God is a judge, then your whole situation is that you're being evaluated. And there are um, arguments that you can make. There are appeals Reasons, excuses, you can ask the judge to judge that other person, Uh, but the judge is judging everybody, and you better hope that you do what you have to do to make it come out right on your side, and if you think of the judge element as being inside you, you then you are a person who must have clear rules, fair rules. You feel most on top of things when you know exactly what's what and you never break the rules by accident. So, you want to make sure that everybody around you knows your rule and and that you are always on this track of evaluating. Is this good or bad? Is this fair or not fair? Is this just or unjust? Is this tasteful or not tasteful? I'm always evaluating. You think of God as a shepherd, which some people kind of bypass uh, the big God and just deal with Jesus as the shepherd, the good shepherd, and that's their primary relationship. And if the shepherd is your primary relationship, then the situation is you're in the flock, And you should um, follow the shepherd wherever the shepherd goes. And you shouldn't really go off on your own because that's not good. And the shepherd makes a deal to protect you from the bad stuff. If you make the deal to follow him, if you go off on your own, sorry, he doesn't have to protect you anymore. Or if you go off on your own, he comes and gets you and brings you back. And so your choice is to be either the good sheep or the little lost lamb out in the wilderness, in danger. And so that shapes how you feel about your life. Am I with the flock or am I lost? Am I following all right? Am I not following? Should I think my own thoughts? I don't know because that might be dangerous. If God is your father, then you have all that stuff about your regular father um, glommed onto God. And so... For some people, it means God is this very distant, lordly figure, and for some people it means it's, he's a little too close and violent or upset, or for some, it just means that He's all, he loves you, but he's just kind of disappointed. <laughs> You're not the person he wishes you were, but he loves you anyway. And for some, it's a very comfortable, confident um, father who loves you and protects you and teaches you and disciplines you when you're wrong. And that is a comfortable uh, relationship for most people. And so when you have that father inside you, you, uh, are, you try to be what your idea of fatherly is um, as your highest self. You see what I'm saying? There are different situations depending on your picture. Now, um, the poet in our congregation with the yellow beret, Mr. Barry, bought uh, one of the auction items at our Equinox auction, and the auction item was you may invite the minister to preach about whatever topic you would like to invite her to preach about. And his topic was God the Huntress. So, um, he is not able to be here today, but we're giving him the videotape. So, there's the camera. Everybody turn around and say, hi, Mr. Barry. <laughs> now he'll feel more like he was with us. God the Huntress. Okay. Well, I remember being in seminary at Princeton and learning feminist theology, not from the teachers, but from the other students. They weren't actually teaching it yet. I think they do now. <laughs> but it was really just getting started. And so all of the seminarians were talking to each other about um, how would a female God feel differently to you? What would what would be different about... Um, a queen instead of a king, or a judge, a female judge, and we looked up the story of Deborah in the Jewish scriptures. Deborah was the female judge, and she led her troops into battle, and she was fair and um, deliberate, and she was a good judge over the people. We, we held her up as a, as a model. And um, how would a female shepherd be? How would a mother god? A mother god was very different from a father god. I remember um, teaching women in religion at a college in South Carolina. It was one of those January term courses that are six weeks long. We call them kamikaze courses. I'm sure you do, too. And um, anyway, I said to my students, just for this six weeks to balance out, oh, I don't know, uh, 3,000 years of uh, the other way, we're going to call... <laughs> We're going to call God Mother and She and Her uh, in our class, discussions, and in your papers. Woo! (laughs) I think ballistic is the word. And... So uh, a couple of three of the young women came to my office and I'm like, I just think this is so unjust and I can't believe you're making us do this and this is just so outrageous and that is not the way I think I've been. And I said, oh, I'm so glad that you're passionate about the content of this course. <laughs> One young woman said, um, I'm all right with it, but you know, uh, I was with my parents at a restaurant and, uh, I was telling my mom and daddy about what your assignment was and that we had to talk about God as she and her and, uh, and really I'm all right with it. But my mom and daddy, they were a little bit, they had questions, but they were all right by the end, but there was this waitress and she kept, um, <laughs> she was washing the table right behind us, washing it and washing like for 10 minutes, she was wiping off this table <laughs> And when my daddy got up to pay, we all got up and I was getting my pocketbook. And uh, she said to me, honey, if you keep up with this, you're going to go straight to hell. (laughs) I said, well, she was mistaken. Don't worry about it. But it makes people crazed. It messes with your mind. It changes things. One of the girls said, I just don't think a mother God would be powerful enough to help me. No, that made me sad. And so, of course, um, when you think of God as mother, you've got all your own mother stuff that comes crashing down on that, which um, some people are just better off the way they were. (laughs) But some people felt like that God was more understanding and more um, compassionate and more kind, uh, especially toward women's stuff. And um, then Mary Daly who is a theologian spelled with an a theologian meaning the female god, she is, uh, was a professor in Boston either at Boston College or Boston University I can't remember Boston. Thank you at Boston College <laughs> thank you she was at Boston College uh, and she was always getting into trouble there and we were always reading her stuff because she was so out there. I mean, how any thought you had seemed really safe and tame compared to Mary Daly. And Mary Daly was writing to us, and she was saying, not writing to us, but she was writing her books, which felt like they were to us, and she was saying, you are working with the female face of God in the wrong way. God, the female, is not Yahweh in drag. Wow, so we had to, oh, we had to just get rid of all of our paradigm. And you know, most of you all have been in that place where your paradigms just unravel. um, And your little train, which has been on this track, is now kind of off the track and bumping across a meadow um, with no track. And it feels very um, at sea or lost or insecure. And you feel all alone. Um, So it's good to have people who are talking about this with you. And so we held each other up and kept reading Mary Daly and talked to each other, but it makes a difference. And when you start thinking of God as female, God, whatever God is, as having a female aspect, your train is going to just jump the track. And then what if your God is a huntress? A huntress. If God is a hunter, well, in order to be a hunter, you have to be comfortable in the wild, number one. You're not going to be with all the people in the town. You're going to be up out in the wilderness. You have to be able to be quiet, alone. You're able to immerse yourself in the mind of the thing you're hunting. You have to be able to lose yourself. You have to be able to wait for hours. You have to be quick. And you must be peaceful with taking life, with getting bloody. The huntress we know best is Diana, Artemis, different Greek-Roman names for God the huntress. She was one of the most important goddesses in the Mediterranean world. In fact, there's a story in the book of Acts in the Christian scriptures where the apostle Paul was preaching in Ephesus and the people got together angry at him for preaching uh, another god and they shouted for two hours uh, in a riot in Ephesus, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So she was a powerful Force in Rome, she her shrine was outside the place where the hometown gods were, so she was kind of a foreign god, but she was still uh, one of the most important ones. Her mother Leto was a consort of Zeus, and when she got pregnant with twins, Hera, Zeus's wife, was angry and hounded Leto. Across the globe. And when she was in labor, she was in pain and there was no place on earth or sea that Hera would allow her to have her baby. So she had to travel. There was no place to have the child. Does that sound familiar? So finally, she found a bit of uh, swampy, unstable land that decided to firm itself up for her. And surrounded by swans, she gave birth to Artemis, who then, who was born with no pain, and then turned around and helped her mother deliver Apollo, her twin, with whom her mother was in labor nine days. So Diana Artemis was sacred to women who were in childbirth because she could either help you during a hard labor or make your labor easy as hers had been. And she's always portrayed as a young woman, a virgin, which in the ancient world means she belonged to herself rather than to her dad or to a man. She belonged to herself. The woods were sacred to her, and if you disturbed her woods, it was at your own peril. The animals were sacred to her, especially the deer. Some stories have her traveling with a pack of dogs, and others have her traveling with a pack of maidens. Um, She is not sweet. If you have the huntress either outside or inside you, she does not love you and want you to do right. She's not evaluating you or judging you. She's not motherly at all. You're either with her in her pack or she's protecting you or you're the prey. She says yes when she means yes and no when she means no. She is not accommodating. She is fierce about her body's unassailability. When she caught a young man watching her bathe one afternoon, she immediately arose surrounded by her maidens and said, you are not going to go brag to your buddies that you saw me naked. She turned him into a stag, and then whipped his dogs into a frenzy so they tore him to pieces. If your god is a huntress and she is outside of you, you are either her helper or her prey, what is she hunting? If she's hunting food, she's showing you a way to feed your family and a way to take life in a, a, without displeasing her. If she's hunting you, she's waiting for you patiently. She knows your mind, she sees you clearly, and she will take you completely. If she's hunting truth, she will track it inexorably. She glimpses it in all its forms, and she draws in its scent until that is all she is aware of. If she is within you, as I imagine all the gods that you attend to are, she is that part of you that belongs to yourself, that part of you that is a still point, that part of you that knows how to go out into the wild and wait, the part of you that protects you, that is inviolate. She is the part of you that can hide And listen to the leaves rustle as that which you seek moves on ahead of you. She is the point inside you where you say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. Now we are in the Unitarian Universalist tradition here. And so our forebear, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said, A person will worship something. I ask you to think about what it is you worship and what picture of it you have. What is it you steer by? What is it that is most important to you? And how is it shaping your behavior? How is it shaping your expectations? How is it shaping your sense of who you are in the world? And as a Unitarian Universalist, you are allowed to try on different pictures of the spirit within you and the spirit without it's okay nobody's going to hurt you for doing it so to some degree you have a choice in what you believe and how you believe it it's it's instructive about yourself and about the world to change it sometimes in your mind And, if Diana the Huntress is the one you choose to invite for a while, happy hunting. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. We come to this place in order to be nourished and transformed We come to have more open hearts, deeper souls, more alive minds. We come to see one another's faces. We come to be challenged. And we come to be comforted. May we do this for one another. May we support this place where this happens. May we let the music wash over us and through us. May we get off the track of figuring out what we like and what we don't like and just be in
1: the moment. May it be so. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www. AustinUU dot ORG.